Let's pray. Our gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for giving us your word, the Bible, and we thank you for the truth that it teaches us about the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray this morning that we may know better who he is and what he has done for us and trust in him, for we ask it in his name. Amen. I vividly remember the moment. I was, uh, I was doing a course, an uh, Italian course, and uh, we were out for dinner for the course, and um, sitting in my section of the table was my mum and a couple of younger girls and a couple of uh, older ladies about my mum's age, and they were both teachers, and they were both, uh, they were both divorced, and they, to me, were pretty scary. At one point, the conversation turned to Christianity, and these two ladies, they did not hold back. They were bitter as anything. They were so biting about Christianity and Christians. And then I remember the moment. What do you think, Jeff? And all eyes turned to me. I opened my mouth, but nothing came out. It was only a second, and then the moment was gone, and everyone went on with their conversation. Now, those two women were scary. You know, I've got to think about teachers. Um, particularly teaches my mum age and my mum's age and I was especially as sensitive because my mum was there but really there's no excuse there's no excuses there's no way around it I did not take the opportunity to stand up for Jesus I did not take the opportunity to, to speak out as a Christian the fact is I didn't speak out I wimped out I didn't stand up I shut up Unfortunately, that's not the only time I've done it. I can think of a number of times when it's happened. I've had the opportunity to speak up about Jesus, but I've wimped out. Have you had the same kind of experience? Am I the only, the only wimp around? Have you had that? You've been at work or you've been, I don't know, in mother's group or with your non-Christian family or something. The chance is there to talk about Jesus, but you're too scared. You're too embarrassed and so you wimp out if we're honest most of us have done it haven't we it just it wasn't the right opportunity it wasn't the right time we think in our minds well um, back in chapter 8 of Mark's gospel Jesus told his disciples what it would take to save their lives he said they would have to lose their lives for him he said they would need to pick up their cross and follow him, follow him to death on a cross. But last week we saw they weren't up for it. When push came to shove, the disciples couldn't take it. But when the going got tough, the tough got going. They bolted. When the shepherd was struck, the sheep were scattered. Jesus was arrested and the disciples ran away like cockroaches when you turn the light on. Now in this section we see now in this section we see just this glimmer of hope. A glimmer of hope. There is one last follower of Jesus. Now admittedly he's following at a distance. But Peter, our hero, follows Jesus. He goes bravely right into the courtyard of the high priest. 
Now, now remember what we've seen over these last couple of weeks. Peter has promised Jesus. He said back in verse 31, he said, Even if I have to die with you, Jesus, I will never disown you. And now here he is, the last man standing, the only follower of Jesus left. Mark chapter 14 and verse 53, have a look with me. Mark chapter 14 and verse 53. They took Jesus to the high priest and all the chief priests, elders and teachers of the law came together. Peter followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. There he sat with the guards and warmed himself at the fire. One last follower. I wonder how he'll go. Well, we'll find out later. But for now, Mark shifts our attention. He shifts our attention to Jesus himself. Uh, The leaders of Israel, they're trying to get rid of Jesus. They've arrested him, managed to get him in the dead of night, and now we see they've convened this highly illegal nighttime session of their court. It's, to use an Australian expression, it's a kangaroo court. They, They jump over proper legal procedures to get the result that they want. And in this... In this nocturnal kangaroo court, they're trying, to, they're trying to get some evidence together to charge Jesus with something. No, but nothing sticks. Jesus is innocent of any wrongdoing. Verse 55. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking, evidence, looking for evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death. But they did not find any. Many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. Then some stood up and gave this false testimony against him. We heard him say, I will destroy this man-made temple and in three days will build another not made by man. Yet even then their testimony did not agree. And then finally, in another highly illegal move, the high priest calls on the accused to give evidence against himself. He, He hassles Jesus. But like the servant of the Lord in Isaiah 53, Jesus is silent, doesn't open his mouth, verse 60. Then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. And then finally, the high priest asks a direct question, again, illegally. He demands to know, Jesus, are you the Messiah or not? Are you the Son of God or not? Halfway through verse 61, again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? So here he is. He's in the spotlight. He's before the highest Jewish court. And his life hangs on the answer here. If he keeps silent now... He saves his life. If he keeps silent now, there is no cross. If he keeps silent now, there is no bearing the sin of the world. If he keeps silent now, there is no drinking the cup of the wrath of God. The moment of truth is here. The spotlight is shining. And what does Jesus do? He bravely tells the truth. He says, I am. I am the Messiah. And he says, mate, the day is soon going to come When the tables are turned, when you, Mr. High Priest, and all your cronies here will stand in the courtroom of God, and that day, Jesus says, I'll be sitting there at the right hand of God as your judge. Verse 62. 
I am, said Jesus, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Well, it's not exactly calculated diplomatic move, is it? Fairly strong. Uh, the high priest believes that Jesus is blaspheming God. The kangaroo court agree. Jesus is condemned. They bash him up. And they tease him by calling on him to prophesy. Verse 63. The high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses? He asked. You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They all condemned him as worthy of death. Then some began to spit at him. They blindfolded him, struck him with their fists and said, Prophesy! And the guards took him and beat him. It's a powerful moment, isn't it? It's a powerful moment. Uh, The spotlight shone down and Jesus held out. He bravely told the truth. He confessed to being the Messiah and now he's on his way to the cross. And it's at this point that, uh, that Mark switches us back to Peter, the, the last remaining follower of Jesus. And now it's Peter's turn to be in the spotlight. Now, it's, it's hardly the highest Jewish court in the land that Peter's standing before. It's some young servant girl. But it, it could get uh, Peter into trouble. This servant girl, she challenges Jesus. She, said, she challenges Peter. She, she says, aren't you with Jesus? So now it's Peter's moment of truth. He's promised Jesus, even if all fall away, I will not. He's promised Jesus, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And so here's the chance for the last man standing, the last representative of humanity to go with Jesus, the last follower of Jesus. But he, but he wimps out. He denies being a follower of Jesus. Verse 66. While Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came by. When she saw Peter warming himself, she looked closely at him. You also were with that Nazarene Jesus, she said. But he denied it. I don't know or understand what you're talking about, he said, and went out into the entrance. Peter gets two more chances. But uh, he's denied Jesus once and now he's on a slippery slope. He denies him twice more. Verse 69. When the servant girl saw him there, she said again to those standing around, this fellow is one of them. Again, he denied it. After a little while, those standing near said to Peter, surely you're one of them if you're a Galilean. He began to call down curses on himself and he swore to them, I don't know this man you're talking about. Immediately, the cock crowed the second time. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken to him. Before the cock crows twice, you will disown me three times. And he broke down and wept. Well, it's very ironic because um, it's exactly what Jesus prophesied would happen. And uh, if you think about it, If you go back to the previous story, it ends with people beating up on Jesus, uh, teasing him by calling on him to prophesy, and then meanwhile downstairs, his prophecy about Peter is coming exactly true. It's painfully ironic. 
Uh, but, but did you notice also that Mark has done his sandwich technique thing again? He's, they're all, they're all, all through this section of Mark, aren't they? Um, he's, he's sandwiched the story of Jesus' trial inside the story of Peter's failure. We start off with Peter, then we see Jesus in the spotlight, bravely confessing to be the Messiah. Then we see Peter in the spotlight, wimping out on Jesus. You see the sandwich? Again, this sandwich, it shows up a couple of things clearly. Uh, first, can you see there's a, there's a contrast, isn't there? It's a very deliberate contrast here. You've got Jesus' faithfulness and bravery versus Peter's faithlessness and cowardice. Uh, you, you've got Jesus, he, he's, he's bravely standing before the highest court in the land, the highest court of the Jews, and bravely saying, I am, I am the Messiah. And, and then you've got Peter before a servant girl and a couple of bystanders saying, Never heard of him. Never heard of him. Powerful contrast, isn't it? It's a contrast. But second also, what this does, it shows us again the aloneness of Jesus. I don't know if that's a word, but I'm making it up. The aloneness of Jesus. The last follower has fallen. Jesus will face the cross alone. No one can save their lives by denying themselves and following him to the cross. No one can go with Jesus to the cross. He alone must bear the cup of the fury of God for us. Well, the, uh, the, the, the nocturnal kangaroo court has jumped to its decision. Jesus deserves to die. But under the, under the rules of the Roman occupation, the Jewish court doesn't have the power to execute death sentences. And anyway, the Sanhedrin doesn't want Jesus' blood on their hands. They're too stressed about the crowds. They're too political. So they take Jesus off to the Roman ruler, to the infamous Pontius Pilate. Chapter 15 and verse 1. 15-1. Very early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders, the teachers of the law and the whole Sanhedrin reached a decision. They bound Jesus led him away and turned him over to Pilate. And now, we, now we're before Pilate, we see that the, that the charge has morphed a bit, it's changed a bit in its shape. It's no longer a charge of blasphemy, that's important in a Jewish court, irrelevant to Rome. Now it's been shifted slightly, so now it's a charge of treason against Rome. They're saying that Jesus is claiming to be the king of the Jews, a, a rival to Caesar. But Pilate's no fool. Uh, he takes one look at Jesus and he knows something fishy is going on here. Uh, something, something shonky is going on here. First, this bloke does not look like a king. And second, what on earth are the Jews doing handing their king over to the Roman governor? It's not right. Pilate looks at Jesus and he says literally, you are the king of the Jews? To which Jesus replies literally, you say so. Verse 2. Are you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate. Yes, it is, it is as you say, Jesus replied. Now there are lots of other charges, but Jesus isn't talking. Like a sheep before her shearers is silent, the servant of the Lord doesn't open his mouth. Verse 3. The chief priests accused him of many things. So again Pilate asked him, aren't you going to answer? See how many things they are accusing you of. But Jesus still made no reply, and Pilate was amazed. 
Well, at this point, a crowd joins the scene. They come to Pilate and they're asking him to do his usual favour at this time of year to, to release a prisoner for the festival of Passover and unleavened bread. Uh, Pilate, um, clever politician that he is, he tries to take the chance to, to set Jesus free. He knows there's some kind of jealousy thing going on, something's fishy about this. Jesus has been handed over by the Jewish authorities for some shonky reason. He figures the crowd, they, they might not be in on it, they, they might be a way that he can get Jesus set free. Chief priests too quick for him. They talk the crowd into releasing Barabbas instead of Jesus, verse 6. Now it was the custom at the feast to release a prisoner whom the people requested. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the uprising. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? Asked Pilate, knowing it was out of envy that the chief priest had handed Jesus over to him. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. Well, plan A has failed and there is no plan B. The crowd demand that Jesus be crucified. Pilate knows something is not right. But classic politician style, he doesn't think this is a hill worth dying on. More interested in self-protection than protecting the innocent. And so even though he knows it's shonky, he hands Jesus over to be crucified. Verse 12. What shall I do then with the one you call the king of the Jews? Pilate asked them. Crucify him, they shouted. Why? What, what crime has he committed? asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder. Crucify him! Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. Well, can you see the contrast again? We had the contrast with Peter before, now we've got a contrast with Pilate. Here's a contrast of the kings of the Jews. Now, Jesus is the brave king of the Jews, the, the king of the Jews with, with integrity and with real authority, the king of the Jews who, who won't serve himself but will serve his people even to death. Against him you've got Pilate a spineless, unjust ruler who serves himself above his innocent subject, who is pushed around by the crowds. Uh, Pilate may have the political power, but I tell you what, I know who's the true king, don't you? I know who's the one I want my king to be. And, and, and again, for those with eyes to see, there's a real irony here. Because back in chapter 14, verse 65... The people were teasing Jesus and calling on him to prophesy there in verse 65. But just have a look at your outline because I've put there a prophecy of Jesus from chapter 10. Have a look with me and see, and we'll see it again next week when the Gentiles start spitting on him and so on, how exactly this is fulfilled. Can you see it's on the second page of the outline, about a third of the way down. We're going up to Jerusalem, Jesus said, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and teachers of the law. Tick. They will condemn him to death, tick, and will hand him over to the Gentiles, tick, who, in, a, in the next passage we'll see next week, will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later he will rise. These people are mocking Jesus, calling on him to prophesy, and these very same people are fulfilling his prophecy. Again, it's a painful irony isn't it 
All right. Well, I don't know about you, but this whole story makes me cranky. This story makes me grumpy. Everyone in this passage annoys me no end. Pilate. Pilate makes me cranky. He is such a pathetic political pragmatist. There you go, a bit of alliteration for you. Pathetic political pragmatist. He ought to protect Jesus. Here is his innocent subject. He has been given power from Rome, from Caesar, to protect the innocent, but he protects himself instead. The chief priests, they make me cranky as well. They are so terrible, evil, envious, envious, conniving, self-righteous hypocrites. Can't stand them. The crowds, don't they make make you cranky? Why are they calling for Jesus to be crucified? Pathetic turncoats. And the disciples. Where are they? The going got tough and the tough got going. The wimps ran like rats leaving a sinking ship. This is an awful story. Everyone here is pathetic. And the upshot is that an innocent man is tortured and murdered. The upshot is that the Son of God goes to a human cross, undeserving and all alone. Awful stuff, isn't it? Okay, well, this is a very real passage of contrasts. You know, Jesus' bravery versus Peter's cowardice. And Jesus' integrity versus Pilate's unjust pragmatism. And the fundamental application for us as we, as we think about this passage is this. Jesus alone is worthy of our trust. No one else deserves it. Jesus alone is the king worth having. You don't want Rome for your king. You don't want Caesar for your king. You want Jesus for your king. Jesus alone is the one who went to the cross. Jesus alone is the one who can save us. We need to trust In Jesus alone, he's the only one who's worth it. But I think we can also learn from the failures here. Maybe not so much from Pilate. I don't know if Pilate learned any lessons from all this. Probably not. But I do know about Peter. And it's here that I think we can apply this passage to ourselves in a very challenging way. See, Peter learned something very valuable that night in the courtyard of the high priest. He learned a lesson that he never forgot. Peter that night, he did something he really regretted and he never wanted it to happen again. A few days later, after Jesus rose from the dead, he forgave Peter. He reinstated Peter. He gave him another chance. Three times he said, Pete, mate, I want you to look after my disciples. Reinstated him. And, you know, from there on, he was, he was a changed man. He didn't forget the tears of this night. He went on to spend his life telling people about Jesus. Later on, Peter was arrested. He was brought before the Jewish court, the same shonky, evil characters that Jesus was before. Uh, Peter was put under the spotlight again, this time before the highest Jewish court in the land, only this time it was different. This time Peter talked about Jesus and he said, Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. 
court said, you've got to stop talking about Jesus or we're going to give it to you. You know what Peter said? He said, judge for yourselves whether it's right in God's sight to obey you rather than God. For we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. Later on, Peter was put in prison, beaten up, dragged before the court again, back into the spotlight. He was told, you've got to stop talking about Jesus or we're going to kill you. You know what he said? We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus from the dead, whom you had killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and saviour, that he might give repentance and forgiveness of sins to Israel. We are witnesses of these things. Later on there was a problem in the church. The Jewish Christians were arguing that the the Gentiles couldn't be proper Christians. Peter messed up a couple of times. but, But it came to a big meeting. Peter was put under the spotlight again and you know what he said? He said, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. See the point? Peter learned a powerful lesson that night in the high priest's courtyard. He messed up, but he resolved in himself, it will never happen again. Never again will I wimp out. Never again will I shut up. Never again will I disown Jesus. They can kill me, and I won't do it again. Later on, Peter wrote a letter. Wrote a letter to some Christians. And it's fascinating, if you look through Peter's first letter, how often he talks about not being scared. I've put one little passage on your outline there. Can you see it? From 1 Peter chapter 3. Peter wrote, Even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do it with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience, so that those who speak maliciously against your good behaviour in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. It is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Friends, I look at this passage here in Mark today and I want to learn Peter's lesson because it's happened to me as well. I have shut up instead of standing up. I've wimped out instead of speaking out. But I look at Peter here in this passage today and I want to say to Jesus, Jesus, it won't happen again. It won't happen again. I don't want to be a wimp anymore. I don't want to be scared of people anymore. I don't want to be embarrassed about being a Christian anymore. I want to be a Christian and I want to be a fair income Christian who is not ashamed of the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's what I want to say to Jesus today. Jesus, it won't happen happen again now, I know it's very easy to stay to, to stand here in church in front of my friends and say that I know it's going to be much harder out there but 
that's my resolution. So I go off on my holiday with my dad and my brother and my brother-in-law. That's my resolution. Jesus deserves nothing less. Will you join me in this? Will you join me in this? Will you learn with me the lesson that Peter learned? Don't be a wimp anymore. Let's, let's bravely stand up for the Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Almighty God, our loving Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for his extraordinary and wonderful bravery that before Pilate and before the Sanhedrin, he made the good confession and went to death for us. We acknowledge that we, along with all people, have sinned against you and have betrayed you and have deserted you and we're sorry for our failure. Our Father, please, by the power of your Holy Spirit, enable us to be brave disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ who stand up and speak out for him. Please give us the strength in this, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.